Welcome, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, whoever the fuck you are, listening to us on Hit Different Weekly Podcast. Thank you, Mushroom, for for giving us the the clout and the drive. Today, we're going to be talking about Genesis Owusu's crowd caving in the Enmore Theatre and all that goes along with the safety of gigs these days. Uh, Milo's going to jump into Double J petition. Let's get Double J on, on the radio. And then we're going to go into Richie McNeil's illustrious career, Game Changer Scene Rearranger. That's all after this. Boomtown, welcome Milo Eastwood. It's wonderful to be here. (laughs) Welcome Richie McNeil. Thank you. Richie, from the top, the elephant in the room is you're still alive. Just. You had a rough, rough trot. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's been going on the last sort of three, four months for you, boss? Uh, It's been three months and actually I'm going to see my lung physio after this at 12 o'clock today. Uh, I had COVID. I got Delta in uh, mid-December which I think was from just a bunch of gigs I did late November, early December, schoolies down at the Peninsula and um, a couple of shows, Reminisce and Marlowe and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we had three weekends of back-to-back shows and I played at a club like this uh, Age of Love, like 90s gig. And um, that weekend I just got sick on the Monday and uh, not sure which one gig I got it from. And uh, yeah, I was in hospital by the um, 16th of December, basically, um, have asthma, so... Um, you know, having heart, my heart racing from 60 up to like 190, thought I was having a heart attack, uh, stomach pains, sore muscles, headache, diarrhea, like every symptom except for vomiting, basically. Jesus. Putting headache up for like a day and a half, couldn't sleep. The headache was so intense. I just could not physically lie down and go to sleep for a day and a half. I uh, ended up in hospital, had COVID in the lungs, and then now I've got long COVID. So basically I'm, uh... I've had lung scans and things. I've got fluid in my left lung. My lungs are only inflating to 90%. I've lost 10% capacity. Um, my asthma is sort of coming in and out. I've got a machine at home I put on for breathing and for um, steroids and stuff, um, which I have for asthma anyway. Some days it's good and some days it's, uh, you know, I feel off. I just feel off, like um, dizzy and just uh, heart going crazy, um, stomach pains, just weird stuff and it's just going to be in the system for a while and uh, I've got lung physio today, I've got a respiratory specialist and heart specialist and just all this sort of stuff and trying to, uh, but apparently my symptoms are not uncommon uh, for people that get it bad. Uh, You can have these things go on for six to 12 months and obviously it's something new we don't know a lot about. So um, hopefully I can get back to 100%. Mm. (laughs) We're we're glad you're doing good. It's always uh, great to hear the perspective of someone who's um, dealt with the brunt of it. It's kind of uh, easy for it to be in the background, but uh, thanks for sharing. Yeah, and 190, B, 190 BPM, you could turn into a drum and bass DJ, is that? Oh, look, I do I do martial arts. I'm actually like one belt away from my black belt in Muay Thai and uh, one grading away from my black sash in Kung Fu. And, and this has been for two years and COVID kicked in and then I literally was doing a bit of training at home and thinking, oh, you know, I'm not six months away from either of these anymore. It's going to be a while. And then I can't do any training now. Like I literally go for a run for two minutes and I run out of puff. I went to pick my daughter up from school the other day. It was a 35 degree day. I couldn't walk 200 meters without sitting down and having a drink of water. Like it's just, um, it's pretty exhausting. So um, it's just an unlucky dip. I've got friends that are really fit that have had it and no symptoms at all. And people that have got things like me like asthma and no symptoms at all. And then people that are perfectly fit. Uh, one of the guys from room, Rob, passed away uh, the weekend of, um, of, of Mobile Disco. Uh 
picnic in January. Yeah, from Room, one of the old owners from Room. Um, young, you know, two young daughters. Uh, got it. Was in hospital in a few days. Um, had a stroke and passed away in hospital at the Alfred. So that's hideous, mate. It's uh, it's just a, it's just an unlucky uh, unlucky dip. It just affects everyone differently, and um, it's mm-hmm. you know it's very serious. I see all these people sort of brush it off online and that have had it's, it and got oh yeah it's nothing you know and that's fine for most people but it's just that mm. one in one in a hundred that just get the unlucky uh card mm. you're our man on the scene as well sort of our man on the ground when you're talking in your diaries about arriving at the alfred and there's three ambulances and then leaving you know a day later and there's 25 ambulances backed up oh when i arrived there was 10 there was nowhere for my ambulance to park they literally got me out of the ambulance and i was there with a with a, like a really thin blanket and this like godlike storm came and this wind whimmed up in this horizontal sideways rain. And I'm like, could you get me another blanket? I was like shivering. My heart was going like, you know, 160, 130, back up to Jesus. 170, whatever. And they had me on this machine and they literally parked me in the in the front of the emergency, like underneath the awning um, with somebody else. And we were just waiting until, and those ambulances were full. And they said, oh, look, you're going to jump the queue because you're outside. But these people have been waiting for like an hour. Uh, so I went in after about 90 minutes and then when I left the next day like there was just you know there was a bunch and it was kind of December it was you know this was on the 16th of December that Sunday but it was kind of that time just before that real explosion that came at Christmas you know that whole Christmas to January 15th where it just went bananas Uh, and there was already queues then but it was just I think it's just because um yeah like just a number of ambulances around and obviously it's such a slow process like you know the guys were out the front while my heart was going crazy I was watching them on the camera going fucking hurry up and get in here, you know, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Putting their suits on and getting all their equipment on, you know, and I was like, it took them five minutes from out the front of them. It only took them six minutes to get here. It took them, took me 20 minutes on the phone to get, I got through to Triple O and the guy who says, do you want fire, police or ambulance is like, ambulance, ambulance, Where? what's your address? I gave him the address. I was having trouble breathing, thought I was having a heart attack and then literally like, he's like, just hang on now, won't be too long. And this went on for like, 17 minutes or something before we actually got through to the lady of the ambulance thing going hello what's your address and then it was like um and then but then they came really quickly uh because i'm in Mm -hmm. turak and they came from obviously uh but then they went down chapel street i'm sitting in the back and this girl's like what are you doing she's trying to like calm me down i'm like oh i run festivals she's like oh which ones i'm like oh you know picnic she goes oh i go to picnic (laughs) (laughs) and then then, like the ambulance is going like this and that i'm like what's going on i look out the window and i'm like are you on chapel street and he's like yeah i'm like it's two o'clock on a Sunday. Are you crazy? Like, it's the worst. <laughs> I was like, it's the worst day to be on Chapel Street. Like, you know, we're literally like going up on the gutter and around the tram line. And she's there asking for guest list. It probably uh, took like, <laughs> honestly, the ambulance ride probably took 20 minutes and it should have taken probably four if he just went up Williams Road and down Commercial Road, but he just went the wrong Cutting way. Cutting chap laps. What a fool. What a damager. <laughs> Surely you got to chuck the paramedics on the door for the next picnic event, right? Uh, the two that drove me home in this little like golf, there was like these little like runabout cars that drive people back home and it was like a little golf with a couple of young med- medical students in it all dressed in their PPE and plastic on the seats and stuff. I was in the back and they were driving me home the next day on Sunday, on Monday morning. They were the same, like, oh, you know, what are you doing? I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to Peggy Goo in April. Yeah, we can't wait. We've got our tickets already. I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> so the service has been amazing, like the hospital and the ambulance and just the whole system of... Mm. And all things considered, uh, you know, you could be taking a bit of time off. But no, you're closing the Belfast stage at City My Music Bowl this weekend. So Back to normal. Know. We're trying to anyway. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Friends, uh, we're going to be talking about Genesis Owusu, who had a bit of a tumultuous Thursday in just a moment. 
Last Thursday, actually two Thursdays ago by the time you listen to this, uh, Genesis Owusu won the $30,000 Australian Music Prize, which means he wants the Triple J Award, the ARIA Award. It's the year of Genesis, and it's... Uh, ha- Hasn't quite converted to streams yet, we'll be honest, but um, I think overseas, once he gets to start touring and he might have like a, a Future Islands Seasons moment if he does a, a Colbert or a Fallon or something similar to that. Uh, on the same night, he went to do a show at the Sydney's uh, Emmor Theatre and two songs in, the <laughs> the ground caved in. Thankfully, no one got hurt. He said it was about a four-metre drop. Like some of the footage there was quite bouncy. Just the whole thing was was pretty rough. And we're speaking, obviously, with Richie Rich today, who has seen all kinds of things go down at festivals, which we'll ask in a second. I think Genesis will parlay this into some great content slash, you know, some great notoriety. He's already rescheduled the show. I think uh, no matter where he plays now, the running sort of joke will be, uh, will we cave in the floor tonight? <laughs> I've seen some crazy shit in my time. I've seen the prodigy actually asking at Boiler Room, so we are not, we are not leaving until this tent comes down. I was thinking, you fucking tosses, that's not cool. And Ted didn't come down, thankfully, and that's obviously not what they wanted. In light of everything that went on with um, Astro World and Travis Scott, despite, you know, how many priors he had and, and how many how many times people have said, can you please make this safer? And that was all very, very rough. And not just that, he's, he's announced a new safety initiative in response to the Astro World tragedy, which just feels like, it just feels just, the narrative there is all out of whack. You should have done it before then. Ask you though, Richie, you, you've, you've seen all kinds of things in, in your time. What would you have done in the Enmore Theatre situation? And how do you sort of ensure your venues, et cetera, and, you, and you know, your festivals you're putting on are so safe in, with everything going on? Oh, geez. Look, I, I, I don't actually use Century venues in Sydney because I refuse to until the Metro gets, uh, gets a new set of carpet. Basically, because yeah. the last time I was there with infected mushroom, like my runners stuck to the floor and like I kept walking in my sock, my shoe stuck to the floor and my sock came out of the trainer and I went and stepped on the next thing and stepped on this like soggy, like vodka laden, like carpet, like that's just, icky carpet. It's, icky, just it's icky. the ickiest carpet in the world. And I said, until they renovate this place, we're not coming back. So actually mm. Century Venues, which also own Enmore, I haven't been in for a concert or done a show there for probably five years. Um, so they probably haven't done much to it since I was in there last, and that might, might be why there's a hole in the floor, I'm not sure. But um, look, if, in my, what do you do in that situation? There's not much you can do but stop the show and hopefully you know everyone's okay and get the security to you know create a circle and uh, get everyone out of there, I guess. It just shouldn't happen. If it's, a, it's a, you know, I mean, if it's, if it's rated for X amount of people, you know, that sort of stuff shouldn't happen. I mean, if it's uh, if it's hollow underneath, which obviously it was because I saw the hole, obviously they'd inspect it from, from time to time and make sure the, you know, the wooden uh, bracing or whatever they've got, you know, on the floor underneath it because it obviously wasn't concrete. It was obviously some sort of like wooden structure underneath it holding up the floor. Um, I mean, I'm sure they check it from time to time, but it was it's obviously it's an old building and... Uh, what's happened with Shed 14 down in Atlantic, same thing, you know, those those peers on, peers on the dock there, they came in for their quarterly inspection and just went, that's it, over, went up the fence. There was, you know, cold meats hanging up in the fridge. There was $2,000 dollar bottles of wine in Atlantic's, like, um, you know, wine cupboards for weddings and stuff, and literally yeah. was all just stuck there, and no one was allowed from that very second on the property and, and hasn't been. I mean, they've allowed some people to go in there and remove some of that stuff, but it's just been literally shut down so i mean the building inspectors are pretty strict and i guess uh you know there's not much you can do if that happens you just saving lives get every get everyone out of there and luckily they didn't have anyone hurt themselves seriously hurt themselves and um it just shouldn't happen 
Richie, in terms of festivals and gigs that you've put on over the years, when you're dealing with large-scale events, there is a certain level of sort of boring safety stuff that does need to go into place. But where do you find the line between sort of making sure that everything is super safe but also giving a level of trust to the crowd to sort of look after themselves as to not come across as sort of being overbearing from a safety point of view? I think we've all been at an event where there's been heaps of you know rules written on the walls and it's always felt sort of a little bit overbearing like, you know, you're a five-year-old and, you know, you're at your grandma's house again. But where have you found the line over the years b- between uh, providing safety and also sort of leaving it in the, the punter's hands as well? Look, I think that messaging that you see at those events, it's all part of, A, you got to do it because you've got liability issues and stuff and insurance and things in place that specifically you've got to cover yourself um, with your warnings and all that sort of stuff. But it's all legitimate stuff. Like, you know, when we had Stereosonic in Sydney in, I think it was 2013 or 2012 with LMFAO and... We had 70,000 people in Sydney that year. And I remember standing there with the chief of police on the operation that day at the front of house, you know, uh, in, at the D barrier. On the stand at the D barrier has got this little thing that security can stand on so they can stand over the crowd. Standing there with Tracy Wall, our safety manager, and this policeman just telling them what we're going to do here. And the police were just like, uh, uh, what do you want us to do? Like, it was the first time they actually listened to, um, you know, what, what, we, what we actually said because uh, normally in Sydney they like to take take the reins and stuff but I think you know these you know when you're dealing with that 18 to 35 year old crowd it's a high energy environment people are drinking you know they're taking drugs they're broken up for school for the year they're just in let's let our hair down loose mode and stuff like they just get loose and you, you, you just do have to remind them um, and you said about the responsibility like I feel you know I am a parent but I try not to be to the the, the crowd but at the same time mm-hmm. like I've seen the the negative impacts of just one mistake and what it does to you know like those deaths in Sydney that year where there was five or six deaths off those bad pills and the, and the ripple effect that's had on us as promoters nationally and especially in Sydney uh, with escalating cost and more restriction and stuff and, and less fun for the crowd like it's kind of like a preservation mode that I go into so it might sound sometimes like a bit of a school teacher uh, you know in the way that we run things and telling kids you know like telling the punters through messaging and stuff or whatever else, or having a bit of a rant on social media, but it's also just that, you know, we're passionate about it and we want to preserve our business and preserve their culture. And sometimes they just need to have their socks pulled up because, um, you know, they just forget that, you know, drugs are illegal and you've got a drinking limit, um, you know, there, there are drinking limits and there are certain, you know, things that aren't okay, touching other girls and rubbing up against them at festivals and all this sort of stuff. And you just have to remind uh, people of it um, because they they just forget you know there's blurry lines in that environment and you just have to clear the lines a little bit if, if that makes sense so that's that's why we do it I mean you know the sexual um, you know harassment type stuff that goes on at festivals the posturing with guys you know to other guys which is what you could always say is like not gang related but that whole kind of posturing thing and everything and the, the, the male stuff that tops on policy that I bought in in Stereosonic mm-hmm. back in the day they got heaps of publicity it wasn't about guys with uh, you know, big muscles and intimidating other guys. It was about girls like, you know, getting rubbed up against a guy by mistake that's got a sweaty body and they've got a nice dress on and it's like, ugh, it's disgusting. That was, yeah. that was the, that was the driving, uh, that was the driving <laughs> reason for that. And then the, the whole tops yep. on thing and that other, um, culture of guys that, you know, shred all winter and go to the gym to show off their muscles at the start of summer uh, was a secondary thing that, that we kind of managed to, uh, you know, cover up slash sort of put away. I mean that that. But I mean, yeah, you, you just you have to educate these um, these punters. You know, it's an education process as well. I think. 
We as promoters have responsibility to, just like the school system and just like the legal system and whatever else, I feel, when you've got such large numbers and such a, a young audience that, uh, that can be easily influenced, we have a role like, like football players and like uh, personalities and actors and things to, to be responsible and to help um, educate our crowd on, on what's, what, what's right and, and what's not right. Richie, before you mentioned that the police finally listened to you guys on something, what was it like sort of uh, gaining that sort of relationship with law enforcement like that when they were actually willing to collaborate with you on ideas? Because that must have been relatively frustrating uh, leading up into that moment. The police do a great job. And then, uh, honestly, they do. But then they also do a shit job. And it just depends on who you get. If a policeman brings his own personal views to the way that he polices and does his job, there can be issues. If the policeman uh, follows the the status quo and basically uh, believes in you know in in the, in the system and, and and what the rules are and, and how things should be done, they generally we get a better result. Uh, it's just when you get those loose cannons that come with an attitude uh, with baggage from you know one of their friends passed away taking drugs or their friend died in a car accident hit and run and when they pull you over they're like you're getting a ticket you're not getting off to it. it you know it depends if they're bringing their personal lives to the job or if they're they're just you know doing their job which is what they should be doing so generally mm-hmm. the majority of them do a good job but um it is you know it's frustrating um what's really frustrating about this country is it's eight different countries it's a bit like america yeah. every state is different and some police uh you can pay for them other other states you can't i mean for melbourne for a very long time you could not pay for police to come to an event the big day out would get four or six police for fifty thousand people and that's it and we lobbied uh, Melbourne Park, um, Etihad Stadium, Live Nation, Frontier, Hardware, Future Entertainment, a whole bunch of us lobbied to um, the minister at the time, uh, Justin Madden, to say, hey, we need event police available on a user pay system where we uh, pay for them to be there um, mm-hmm. because we need, there, there were issues with um, like park life with fence jumping that sort of started around one of those park life Groove Amata years. Uh, where the fence ju- jumping really came back into play and it became a sport for young people because th- there was a period of, in Melbourne where there was just no police anywhere. They weren't on the streets. They used to, you know, in the 90s, they used to be on Chapel Street on a Friday and Saturday night on, on the beat, walking up and down. And then in the 2000s, you just couldn't see them anywhere. So we lobbied hard for the uh, user pay system to come back. Um, and basically, I think a lot of states then started to follow suit, like Adelaide that had no system. Um, they'd turn up to the Grand Prix and, you know, the Melbourne Cup and those iconic, you know, Australian Open, those iconic sort of major sort of events, but all of the mm. mid-tier event and the cricket, you know, and stuff like that. But the mid-tier events, like concerts, festivals that were doing just as big a numbers as the Boxing Day test sometimes, just were getting no police support at all and there was lots of problems mm. and, you know, the security and the promoter only has a certain amount of um, legal rights to do certain things and the police obviously... The uniform and the badges respected a hell of a lot more than, than the, the security are. So um, we lobbied to have them back and they came back. But it's frustrating because every state is different. Um, the, the attitude with, with every state is uh, with policing is different as well. Um, mm-hmm. The same with ambulances, with, with working with um, you know the medical side. Um, the health departments are all different. It's um, There's no consistency. And as a promoter, it's, uh, it's really difficult and frustrating. Mm. Um, late to late nineties, early two thousands. My cousin in law is a cop, and he used to say he used to love going down. All the cops used to love going down to the Docklands and Shed Fourteen for for our international national listeners. This is in Melbourne because there was no problems. Everyone was just loved up. 
taking good drugs and having the best time. <clears throat> and and the cops are getting paid like double or triple time as well. So they're like three in the well, We weren't paying them then, which was good. So yeah, those hardware yeah. days at Chet 14, like uh, there was yeah. no user pays. They'd come down. And the thing is, they'd come down undercover at like five o'clock before doors with their badges and <clears throat> say, you know, these are our badges and da da da. And you'd, they'd go to like, they were wearing Stussy and like rene- renegade <laughs> cyber store <Stussy>. tops. <coughs> and renegade cyber store tops. And they'd gone out. You'd see them, seen that they'd gone down Greville Street or Chapel Street that Saturday and bought some new clothes. And they were trying to like fit in, but at the end of the day, they were just like 40 something and they just didn't fit in because they just looked like cops with their moustaches <laughs> and short hair and their big, ba- their big badge in their back pocket. You could see like bulging yeah. out and stuff. Yeah. And it was kind of, um, it was really funny, but we never paid them. But you were saying about the docks, um, that was such an iconic time. <clears throat> and down there, it was mainly hardware shows and also shows and a few future shows. They came in a bit later in the piece and ran like trade and a few things and um, uh, down there. But I've actually, it's our 30th anniversary for hardware on New Year's Eve just passed when I had COVID. And obviously it was COVID last year, so I didn't do any celebrations or whatever yet. But we've got, our, we've got a book coming out this year uh, at the end of the great. year. And I've just been going through five, uh, actually about 150,000 photos, but we're down to about two and a half thousand. And about 500 of them are from the 90s, from the very first hardware um, at Mercantile Rowing Club, which was on New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety-one, just over thirty mm-hmm. years ago, which is now, I think, um, I think it's Caulfield Grammar or Brighton Grammar's base, and and um, one of the other schools, St Catherine's School, I think it's there, like mm-hmm. rowing club base. But that's where my first rave was that I ran yeah. in this rowing club, and and then all those old dock photos are there, and it's just such a magical. And there's you know there's no Balti Bridge in the background. You look at the back at the city with the sun coming up and there's only a few buildings like it's pretty amazing the photos we've got so that's uh coming out the book's coming out in november yeah. we're doing a celebration at the end of the year with a whole bunch of great internationals on december the 9th and uh, 10th and 11th sydney melbourne but yeah going through all those old, all those old photos you're talking about from from shed 14 like uh, it was just such a such an amazing location and time in Melbourne. It was just, uh, I just get tingles talking about it, actually. Straight up, the goose flesh. I was always amazed that at 7am I could be wearing a T-shirt caked in sweat and not be cold. It's weird. Milo, take it away for the next segment, please, my man. So, kind of coinciding with International Women's Day uh, earlier this week or last week by the time this goes live, uh, Missy Higgins, Casey Chambers, Kate Miller-Heike and Sarah Blasco have launched a petition calling on the government to allocate funding that would allow Double J to pivot from its current digital format to a national FM broadcast. Um, The sort of byline of this is that a lot of uh, older female Australian artists feel like Double J is the platform that supports them the most and that it's kind of a little bit backwards that it kind of only exists on digital, catering to people with potentially newer, more expensive cars that sort of have that technology or people that, uh, you know, have the app and use their mobile data out and about. They're sort of uh, pointing out as well that older Australian male artists often uh, get the attention and support from stations like Triple M. Triple M. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, Double J and Community Radio seems to really be flying the flag, not just for their older music, but the music that they currently still release, like Missy Higgins, Casey Chambers, Kate Miller-Heike and Sarah Blasco are all currently still putting out great records on a pretty frequent basis. And um, it's really great that the call has been made to uh, put Double J onto the FM uh, format. I think it makes a lot of sense. Mikey? Hell to the yeah, this is overdue. I quite often 
I'm looking through and I'm listening to, say, Triple R and some folky stuff comes on and PBS and someone else is talking a bit too much. I love both of those stations. Then I go to Triple J. I often dip my toe into Triple J and just see what's going on. Uh, and honestly, one in every three songs of Triple J is pretty bloody good. But then I want a bit of Double J because I just want Double J, you know. It's, uh, you've got, you got, you got Henry Waggers, you've got all kinds of incredible Tim Shield, who's going to be a guest on this program in a few weeks' time. Uh, and just, it should have happened by now. Interestingly, I spoke to Miff about a month or two months after um, Double J launched, and they were expecting 100,000 in the first month. They got 300,000. So the listenership was there from from the get-go, and people were like, yeah, I want to move away from sort of bloody beetroots and, and just, just you know, stuff on, on Triple J they thought was cool to something a little bit more mature, but without it being – it's definitely changed as well. Double, Double J is, is no longer kind of like, well, you can't get on Triple J, head over to Double J. Like a lot of good sort of Jack Ladder-esque albums um, get a lot of rotation on, on Double J. Do you, Richie, listen to Double J at all? I do uh, every now and again, but I don't have digital radio in my car. And in summer when it's warmer, I ride my motorbike around the city to get to meetings and stuff. So – I uh, have to just focus on the road, but um, I mean, they're coming in cars and things now and the apps and stuff and data so cheap on phones that, you know, I mean, people are, you know, listening to Mixcloud and streaming like all sorts of stuff now. And I just reckon it's a no brainer, um, you know, and I like ABC's, um, you know, as a, I mean, I read the ABC website. That's the news that I watch when I get home, just on the app, on the Apple TV at home. Um, sometimes I got in the office, you know, Triple J, I listen to a lot, Double J time to time. Um, you know, more digital stations, uh, the better, and um, you know, more Aussie stuff, you know, out there, the better. And to vote for me, it's a yes. I think the point also has to be made that Double J does traditionally have an older demographic, and if sort of the uh, the streaming boom and online boom is sort of stereotypically uh, linked to younger people, it seems almost backwards that the ABC would put their FM station towards their youth market and their digital station towards their older market. I just feel I feel like it's all just a little bit backwards. Totally. Richie, your career was helped out massively. The days of Kiss FM and Hits FM and those, all this sort of energy around it and in the mix forums and all this kind of stuff. Take us back to sort of that very sweet spot around a time where they helped promote your, your hardware events, everything else on, you know, Nick DMQ, Chevron, all that kind of good shit. There was no social media at that point. Facebook hadn't really started yet. But, um, you know, the f- online forums like One Love, Transfusion, 12am.com.au, In The Mix, all of those old forum websites uh, or those websites that were what's on websites doing reviews and interviews and, and their forums were really big which is a bit like the reddit mentality i guess going on now yep. with uh threads you know on topics and posts underneath it it's the same exactly the same thing the reddit phenomena has just been it's like forums reborn if you ask me yeah like radio back then triple r um was a huge like kate bathgate with um beating the street which turned into transfusion on fridays that was such an institution mm-hmm. from 10 p.m. till there's a chapter on her in my book actually like uh, on her and the, the influence that she had on in Melbourne because there's been a few you know there's been a lot of uh, let's say interviews and stories on Vice and things that touch on the rave scene but have really been um, just a little section and Kate's never really got a mention and I don't know hero hey. yeah 100% she never got the credit that she deserved so I've got a whole chapter on her in this book it's like 30 odd short stories in, in this book and then you know two and a half thousand photos and a thousand flies and all that sort of stuff from the last 30 years. And she was such a massive, you know, that voice of hers and uh, she really upfront music. And we used to lend her music from Rhythm Records and she'd get the latest stuff from Central Station. Every international ever came into 
Australia in the 90s in that early period would, would go into a show, Underground Resistance, Richie Horton, Claude Young, mm. uh, Sven Vath, Laurent, Jeff, everybody. Um, you know, it was just such a central meeting point on Friday nights. And I used to play at the Prince, sorry, at the uh, at the Palace on Fridays, you know, pure for Mark mm. James, you know, with Willie Tell and stuff and Terry and <laughs> Steve Robbins. And I used to dread doing that early shift from 10 to 12 if I ever got it because we'd rotate a little bit. Because uh, everyone would be out in the car park, out the front, you know, in their cars, and out the front of the, the the back of the palace, like in front of uh, in front of Donovan's there, like sitting in their cars with the radio blaring, listening to Kate Show from. I didn't realise it was that time. pivotal. It was it was massive, like <clears throat> way before Kiss FM and hit and that sort of explosion of those new independent shortwave stations. Like it was just uh, such a driving. And there was also a guy called Con Deleter, DJC. That had a show on Saturday night on PBS that played a bit more hip hop, hip house, uh, acid house, less of the rave and the the, uh, the the UK and European rave stuff, but more the the US influence stuff. And between those two shows, and Con actually I discovered before Kate, I was listening to him while studying, you know, on the weekends, year eleven and twelve, um, for school. Like he used to, so that was eighty eight, eighty seven. He was on, and I can't remember when Kate started beating the street. I think it was eighty late eighty nine, early ninety. But those, you know, her in particular, that was the show. I mean, all the clothing stores, you know, Wrong, Custard Shop, Renegade Cyberstore, Dangerfield would all do giveaways through her, all the raves, all the club nights, you know, Friday Express at Chasers, Thursday at Checkpoint Charlie, you know, Saturday everywhere around town, um, you know, Sunday Inflation Recovery, all that sort of stuff would all be. Mad Rod, who ran Filter on Wednesdays, would come in and yeah. do it. He'd do a, 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 a summary of what's on this weekend, you know, for five minutes and run through all the raves and the club nights and guests that were in town. It was just such a two hours of power. It was just amazing. Yeah, between that and the forums and the threads and all those things going on, that was, uh, you know, it was that and posters, putting up posters, the poster wars of yep. 93, poster 94. <laughs> Before the, around the time of the Gelati Wars, but a little less death. The poster um, wars, yeah. Yeah, there's a chapter Mad on that Rod. in my book as well, actually, machetes and Unreal. all sorts of stuff. Side note of, of Mad Rod, uh, I went and interviewed him once for Fil Filter, um, the world's longest running weekly techno night, Wednesday nights at the lounge. And I went to his house and he lived in a monastery and he, I got in there and he was playing the sound of Danish women in the bath splashing water on each other. And he gave me some tea and I swear to God, uh, it had mushroom. It was definitely mushroom tea because I came out of there after like an hour of interviewing him and he was being such a tripper. And I walked out of there and I just like all the grass was a, just extra beautiful and sort of levitating and I'm get on a tram and the ding sounded like, I don't know, like orbital chime kind of vibe for Belfast. <laughs> it was just, it was a if very you went odd to Rods, probably. Yeah. 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 And the, and the I mean, sounds of the Danish ladies were still ringing in your ears, even though they weren't yeah. there anymore. Yeah. And instead of sort of being these, um, I don't, I don't know if you too personal, but they were very beautiful women in my, in my mind all of a sudden. So there you go. Cause he was like, these are old pensioners splashing water. <laughs> so there's a whole other experience with a good old mad rod. What do you think the future of radio is, Richie? Uh, considering everyone, as you say, mixed clouds, Spotify, but everyone's using so many different ways to, you know, YouTube is actually a ridiculously um, popular and, and people don't realize how much kids listen to music through YouTube. Oh, 100%. Like, I know uh, my daughter, if she likes a track, like, you know, she goes to YouTube. Uh, she, I bought her a turntable for her 12th birthday because that's all she wanted, she said. Yeah, she listens. Yeah, they go to YouTube. I mean, they hear a lot of stuff on um, TikTok and then they go on YouTube or Spotify. Mm. But, um, you know, she knows the value of records now because I bought her a record player and gave her some old records of mine and, like, New Order and stuff. And she's got her own stuff that we bought her, like Oasis and 
stuff like that that she likes because she sings and plays guitar as well. It's funny because they don't value, they don't have put a value on music like you and I do from back then when we buy a CD and the artwork and the cover and you're like, oh, it's a new Deftones album, this is amazing and you've got the collection yeah. and, um, but you know, like there's still a little bit of that romantic attitude around, like with my daughter buying vinyl and sitting there looking at the Oasis thing and it's got the vocals on the imprint of the inner sleeve and stuff like that. But um, it's all now just, it's incredible. It's all now just, and, and it's actually... From a promoter's point of view and a label's point of view, it's actually good because you've got that data instantly. You can look up and see who's mm-hmm. listening to what when and what the streams are like in city by city and area and what yep. month and all that sort of stuff. So there's advantages, I think, um, in the fact it's gone digital in that sense. But um, I think the value of it's become more disposable now and the value of music, I think, is mm-hmm. less because um, of the streaming and everything. It's, it's, it's more disposable and it's less... There's less of a value on it, I think, from the punters. They just move on really quickly now. It's a pity it's a less of a tactile thing as well, which I think, to your point, you know, opening up and just seeing something and feeling something and having the light glint down on lyrics, all those kind of very romantic things. Same with Street Press, the death of Street Press as well. It's like holding something in, in your hand. It's I'm bummed out for my two daughters and for others, that, you know, the people that are going through that don't quite have that thing where... The TikTok thing. Tell me, with TikTok, uh, how much does that sort of guide how you're booking festivals now? Uh, actually not like we have arguments about it because there's a, you know, there's, there's this new phenomenon of TikTok artists, you know, artists that basically have got a big track on TikTok, you know, um, like A-Craze and stuff like that. And, you know, like, um, you know, the agent saying, oh yeah, you know, A-Craze, you know, 40,000 a show, did it. And just like, we're just like, you know what, we're just not going to go down that road. We're just not that sort of novelty sort of type of thing. Like it's just, we, 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 we also... Yeah, for, for some promoters, it's important because they just want to go down that road because they just want to sell tickets and they don't really have a moral compass when it comes to music. But for us, you know, we're very traditional promoters and you mentioned the beetroots before. We got onto them really early. Like we are, you know, when we're booking the lineup, we're like, right, what's the balance of male, female, new artists versus old? We have to be pushing new music. It can't just be all the big names that people want to see. Uh, you know, Australians versus internationals, what's the balance there? And, you know, we, we, we kind of feel as promoters when we're booking the lineup, we're not that the TikTok thing's not really coming into our radar as a, as a, as a swaying factor, to be honest. It's more, what's the vision of the artist? Um, mm. What's their plan? Are they a smash and grab, just a novelty thing, like one hit wonders or whatever, or what's their, you know, what's their, how old are they? What's their background? Where are they headed? What's their dream? Uh, are their albums, have they got a great show? What's their artwork like? Do they have an artistic outlook on how they're going to market themselves and something unique? And, and that's what we're sort of more looking for when we're booking lineups. The the TikTok thing uh, doesn't come into play for us, but I know for a lot of promoters it does. Like they just look at the stats and it's just purely a stat-driven um, list of artists that they go for. Just a quick side note, if the Bloody Beetroots were a current artist, I can guarantee you that the uh, the one two whoop whoop song wouldn't be a smash on TikTok. <laughs> uh, Richie, I just wanted um, to sort of sidetrack a little bit and maybe talk some uh, stereosonic stuff with you, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, in around 2008-2009, we sort of experienced the uh, the EDM boom, I guess you might call it, where electronic and dance music and house and techno and all of that sort of went from being a subculture to being the mainstream. How did that sort of affect the way that you ran the festival when a lot of these artists that you'd booked previously are now sort of like the major pop stars? 
It's funny to see them grow up. Like David Guetta played the back room at One Love for two and a half thousand dollars. You know, like yeah, I mean, it's 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 great to see. Like you know, there's a lot of these artists. Um, you know, they were they're all sort of similar age to me and Frank, and they've just sort of you know grown. And then there's these new younger artists uh, coming through that. Um, you know, it's um, I mean, it's exciting to see. Like um, you know, this is in our DNA. This is what you know we grew up kind of listening to, and what gets us out of bed each day and our soundtrack to our life during the day when we're in the car, when we're at work, you know. Um, I have to have music going, whether it's when I get home, um, when I'm at the office, when I'm in the car, like it kind of motivates me and sort of it's, um, yeah, it's like a, I love films and soundtracks. So it's kind of like my soundtrack to my life and the same with Frank and the rest of the team. And, um, you know, we're very passionate about it and seeing these, um, seeing these guys grow and explode going from, like I said, David Getter in the back room to where he's at now. He's had like 100 million streams in Australia in the last 18 months or something. It's just, it's mental. Um, and, you know, like we all just started it driven by the same passion, that that thing inside us that just sort of triggered us um, when we heard that rhythm or that sound or whatever it was. And we're all just, uh, we're all sort of standing here now, like 30, 35 years later going, Jesus, you know, like, and, and there's still the journey to come. It's an established genre now, like, you know, urban Urban blew up in the mid '80s, you know, with um, Digital Underground and, and and Run DMC and Beastie Boys and and NWA and, and Tupac and all that sort of stuff. And then it's it's an established genre now. And the same thing happened with um, dance music and electronic. So it'll be here forever. Just continue changing in forms, and you know, it'll come back to drum and bass and break soon, and all these other genres. They all just sort of goes into that cycle every ten years of of of, uh, of, of life, and. Um, it's pretty amazing. I look and I see Dom Dollar and Fisher and all these Aussie guys and and, mm. and Flume still and Rufus and all these acts coming through and um, Pinal still kicking along and you know it's just it's great to see like really proud you know um, to be a part of helping those guys like with their inspiration like they used to come to our shows and stuff and like uh, Sam Lamore you know Nick Littlemore's brother in Pinal used to play at one time in Sydney and mm. and everything and seeing all those guys now where they're at uh, it's you know it's awesome. And, you know, we feel partly was part of that uh, story as well. So it's uh, exciting. And someone said to me, you know, because I used to DJ and that's why I continue to promote because I get that same feeling from promoting a show and seeing 30 or 40,000 or 20,000 or 5,000 people have a good time that I used to get from DJing, but then without having to fly overseas to really make it as a DJ and be alone in hotel rooms and uh, flying around and crazy late night sets at three in the morning and having to drink and put on game face and smile and wave at dinners and fishing and all that sort of stuff just i didn't want to do that so the uh the event side of things when i made that because i ran events while i was djing from sort of 91 so um that i made that decision you know when i was looking around at mark and sean quinn and jason Knipe and jason midrow and all these guys djing going i don't want to go down that road and sort of you know i i get the same feel i was lucky fortunate enough that i was also running those shows and i was getting the same feeling as performing in front of them as standing there seeing all these people have a great time so i've been very fortunate and lucky um to you know do what i love and and um and enjoy it at the same time mm. it's in many ways which you are what andy weatherall said about djing sort of similar to that kind of echoes that sentiment because the art of djing and the the ethos behind djs i've heard this amazing record and i want you to hear it too the same way you got, you got a festival, you know, you got, I've got these amazing artists who I trust as selectors and I want you to, you know, to, to, to see what they can do to, you know, for them to take you on a journey. Um, 
you've got a reputation as, as like a great DJ, as the first person you really use emoticons in their name as well. I remember seeing the Richie Rich thing as a bit of a hard ass, as a cutthroat businessman. When you initially made that decision, like made hard, Hardware Corp into a fucking business, even calling it Hardware Corporation, I think at the time, I wouldn't say it was controversial, but it was very much like ahead of, ahead of the game because yes, it's, it's PLUR, but we need to run a business here. We need to make this, this work. Tell me about, tell us about just that, those, those early, early days of when you just got fucking serious about putting on parties and making it really professional as opposed to just sort of more your kind of peace, love and mung beans kind of vibes. It's funny because you said the corporation thing and that was something that I deliberately did and it's funny you picked up on it because not many people have. When I started Hardware, it was just a bunch of promoters that were also DJs like me, like Frank from Greenat and uh, Midrow, you know, Jason Midrow running their thing before they parted ways and Jason and his brother went on with Base Station and mm. and uh, Sound of Now and, and Frank went on to Greenant with uh, Felix, you know, to set up, you know, Rainbow Circle and stuff. Yep. And, you know, we were all friends and I was playing for them and... Jason was playing for me every now and again, and um, we did a, f- a couple of little things together, I think, even some shows. And basically, um, when I sort of started, well, I, I started hardware, but when I went and registered it as a company, I deliberately put the corporation thing in there because it was kind of like, like you said, it was um, it was kind of like um, the time to professionalise it because we were doing these raves at the docks and there was heaps of things in North Melbourne and all over the all over the um, city and out in the west that were kind of semi-legal but they weren't and you know like promoters running bars at events and the cops would roll up and they'd shut the bar grab the money and leave uh, and <laughs> hide the alcohol and it was just Jeez. very sort of renegade so um, I just felt that you know the pressure was starting to come from authorities the nightclub owners association in the mid 90s were already like lodging complaints to liquor licensing and to the police about the Docklands raves and about this culture in general because they were spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year maintaining their sprinkler systems, getting them regularly checked, their fire hydrants and having smoke detectors and all this kind of stuff as a permanent venue, building code stuff you had to do. And when you were getting a temporary permit, all of that stuff you didn't have to do. You had to do some of it, like fire extinguishers, width of exits, number capacities based on exits and stuff. Um, you know, emergency lighting and some of those things, but but not necessarily all of them. And let alone um, not and and because you didn't have them in there for twelve months, you didn't have to have them come and get inspected every three months, and there was a cost with that. So they were cracking the shits because we we're also taking business away from them. You know, yeah. on, on the long weekend in January when there was winter days also on the Saturday and hardware on the Sunday, sharing production at Shed Fourteen, we'd have ten ten twelve thousand people down there on the Saturday, Sunday, and that meant that Mansion and Chasers and Inflation and Mega Bar and all these places were quiet. And the same mm. on Queen's birthday weekend when they had winter days on the Saturday and we had hardware 10 or 20 or 40 or whatever it was on the Sunday, they were, um, you know, same thing. So they were feeling that pinch of the, of the fact that people were sick of the clubs and wanting to go to these big dance parties, whether they were gay, straight, whatever. And um, they started, you know, complaining about it and, making noise and that's when I sort of hardware corp when I actually registered with ASIC it was because prior to me registering the company it was all going to my dad's charity Tri Youth and I was getting paid a fee to promote and organize those and Jeff Tyler was helping me promote them too. Love Jeff. So yeah just made that decision to because it was all uh, it was all starting to having to go like more above the line and and um with more permits and more scrutiny and plans and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. We gave corporations a good name, which is uh, which is a fucking hard thing to do. So 
yeah, we, we salute you, sir. Thank you so much for your time today, giving us an hour of power. Um, very much, more than anything, we hope you, you get better, dude, and just, you know, the long COVID becomes short COVID and then becomes no COVID. So we're all rooting for you to, to, to get well. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your time again. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Adios. It's y'all.